In the same way, encourage young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach, so that any opponent will be ashamed, because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Amen. Good morning, church. So good to see you all together. So we're going to dive into God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and open to that passage in Titus chapter 2. And if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. We are so delighted that you're here with us. And we're going to study His Word together in this passage. We've been walking through a, a little series called Life Verses, studying passages that have changed the lives of people sitting next to you people in our congregation, in our, our membership, and so we've looked at classic passage after classic passage, and we've heard story after story of how Jesus has changed people's lives through his word, and so along the way, we've seen different themes emerging, really vital truths for Christians to see, so the very first week, we saw this big idea that Jesus is bigger than we can imagine, and we saw that in John chapter 10. And then we saw that his call is simpler than we often make it in John 21, that the call is very simply, follow me. It's uncomplicated, uncumbersome call. And then last week, his peace is known as his people trust him in Isaiah 26. And then here today in Titus chapter 2, which we'll read again in just a moment, I think the big idea, if we summarized it, might go something like this. We share the truth by example and witness. I'll say that again. We share the truth by example and witness. So example is a, is a beautiful thing. It's a powerful and compelling thing. I could, I could just throw out categories like a humble life or a servant-hearted person or a faithful marriage. And hopefully, even as I mentioned those, Names are coming to mind, pictures of people who have exemplified that, who haven't just taught that, but you've seen it developed and played out in their lives. It is a powerful thing. You think about Jesus' own discipleship model where he calls the, his disciples to come and follow him so that, Mark chapter 3, so that they might be with him. There was this proximity, this relationship. He was inviting them into friendship. Come, come with me. Let's do life Together, and they, they didn't just hear the most compelling teaching that the world has ever heard. They saw that teaching backed by the most compelling life the world has ever seen. It wasn't just come into my classroom and let me lecture you. It was, it was teaching that was backed up by a compelling kind of life. And that drew their attention. And so Peter, who, who walked with Jesus, one of his disciples, about 35 years after that period, he would write two letters in your New Testament, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and he would say those things that Jesus did, he did, Peter's words, leaving us an example so that we would follow in his steps. So there's this pattern of discipleship, of transferring this message of the kingdom. Example is a beautiful thing. Look one more time with me, if you will, at Titus chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example, an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message, so there's the message, your message is to be sound beyond reproach 
so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So Titus 2, if we read the entire chapter and evaluated verse by verse every verse in this chapter, as a whole, Titus 2 is saying to Christians, don't just talk the gospel, adorn the gospel. Commend this message of the gospel by the kind of life that you live. In other words, if you're a Christian, God wants to use the words you speak to be sure, but also the life that you live So he wants to use the words that you speak and the life that you live to help Christians grow in Christ and to help non-Christians move toward Christ. So that, that calling describes every believer in this room, every Christian. God wants to use the words you speak, the life that you live to help Christians grow in Christ and to help non-Christians move toward Christ. So every Christian, it's going to look different in your life and my life and somebody else's life, but that's the shape of our calling as Christians to make disciples, to love Jesus, that's my discipleship, and to help others love Jesus, that's me discipling. So let me just give you three kinds of people. These are hypothetical stories, but I think they reflect real things that you might encounter on any given week. The person who's sitting next to you in the coffee shop at the table studying just next to you. The person in the break room. So here's three stories. One, college student from a Middle Eastern country. And her family, all of her family and all of her friends are 6,500 miles away from where we're sitting this morning. And she doesn't feel particularly welcome here. People are generally courteous, but she's never, she's in her third year at a college here, pick one. She's at a third year at a college here. She's never been invited to eat a meal in someone's home. And in her culture, that's how you show that you've welcomed someone, is you invite them into your home for a meal, and she's never been invited over for a meal, so she's left to conclude three years in that she's not welcome here. There's sort of cool, courteous distance, maybe slightly feared, maybe tolerated, but she's not welcome. Here's another story. 34-year-old man. He grew up skeptical about the faith. His parents were against institutional religion, and particularly Christianity was thrown under the bus on a regular basis in the house that he grew up in. And then, at some point later in his life, Recently, he started reading the New Testament. And he was curious, and he had never opened a Bible before, but he started reading the New Testament, and he was fascinated by the Gospels. At first, just curious because of the things that he was reading, and he had never heard this stuff before, but then he was actually intrigued by the person of Jesus Christ, and you check him out two months later, and he has a new heart, and he's been rescued, and his eyes are open to see Jesus as the most compelling human being who's ever lived, the hero of, the, of all of human history, and he puts his trust, and he, f- he wants to follow Jesus, but here's the deal. He's been married for 10 years, he's got three kids, and he has no clue how to be a Christian dad. No clue how to be a Christian husband. He's never seen it before, never read this book before two months ago, no idea how do you move forward with this Christian life, practically. Third, boy in a high school classroom, he's not sure that he has faith in Jesus. He thinks that he probably does, but he feels like he struggles more with temptation than the Christians around him. 
And so he's constantly wrestling with doubt. He's not comfortable in his own skin. He's not comfortable in his faith. There's doubts all around him. If, if it's possible for Christians to feel miserable, then maybe, yes, he is a Christian because that's how he feels. He's got people around him all the time, and yet he's depressed and he's lonely, surrounded by people, but lonely. You know, I did that as an exercise with my small group some years back. And I didn't just tell three stories, I told multiple stories, and I asked the small group, would you just have a pencil in your hand and write down the number of the person who you want to find? <laughs> as soon as I tell their story, you say, I want that person's number. That's, that's something I feel drawn to, toward ministry and friendship. I want to I get involved, right? And the reason that I told those kinds of stories is because I wanted the people in my small group to kind of freshly realize altogether that the people around us in the church and around us in the world, at the coffee shop, in the break room, at the classroom, the people around us don't need another podcast. They need a living, breathing Christian who will share, who will befriend them, who will, who will bring them into their life, who will come alongside, who will take interest in them and offer them friendship. And Titus 2 is calling for these kind of mentoring, discipling, outward-looking relationships that involve both teaching and modeling the Christian faith. And Titus 2, I hope we hear before we're done, Titus 2 is summoning you Every believer in this room, Titus 2, is summoning you into ministry in at least two aspects, two specific calls. So this isn't the shape of all ministry. We could have to read the rest of the New Testament to see broader themes, but what's here is urgently needed. And so the first shape of ministry is this, the ministry of encouragement. The ministry of encouragement. So encouragement is all over this passage and the ministry of encouragement is taken up by the entire church and we'll see that as we move through this point. So first of all, the pastors are encouraging the flock. The pastors are encouraging the flock. So look for example right there in verse six. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now bear in mind who is Paul talking to? He's talking to Titus, the leader of the church in Crete. This is the same Titus that he said, I left you there in Crete, in chapter 1, verse 5 of this book. I left you in Crete that you might appoint elders in every town. So this is a leader. This is probably the teaching pastor in Crete. And Paul says to him in verse 6, hey, Titus, in the same way we just talked about it, I want you to encourage you, pastor, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And I love those first five words in verse 6, in the same way, encourage. In other words, there's a sense in which Paul has been talking about the ministry of encouragement all along. He's instructing Titus how to encourage, verse 2, older men. How to encourage, in verse 3, older women, who then will, in verse 4, encourage younger women. So there's this ministry of encouragement. It's flowing from Titus. It's flowing from the elders, right? When, when you read these verses, you see Paul telling Titus to direct the church toward, encourage the church toward godly living and godly 
attitudes. The emphasis of Titus 2 is decidedly on the life of the believer. The living, the doing, the works, the deeds of the believer. There are character qualities and traits all throughout chapter 2. We'll look at them a little bit later on, just in a list form. So there's character qualities all over the place. And what's that supposed to be saying to Titus? It's saying this, the pastoral task isn't merely to develop and cultivate a people knowledgeable of the truth or a people conversant with the truth or even a people fluent in the truth but a people changed by the truth. That's the pastoral task. Lives transformed by the gospel. Lives transformed by God's word. Jesus didn't pray in John chapter 17 that his disciples would be educated by the truth. Your word is truth. He prayed that his disciples would be what? Sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth. That is set over here in a unique way. Lives totally different than the rest of the world. Set apart, cleansed, washed, new. Lives changed by the truth. The Apostle Paul, in so many places, he speaks of pastoral ministry, the nature of pastoral ministry as a ministry of encouragement. So just look at these passages. We'll have them up on the screen. 2 Timothy 4.2. He's talking to Timothy, an elder. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, correct, and there's the word, encourage with great patience and teaching. Timothy, I want you to encourage the saints. And then Paul talks about right here in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. He's in the context of talking about what elders are doing and what elders are like. And he says, here's what elders are like. They're hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled. By the way, he's not starting with what the elders teach. He's starting with what they're like, their lives, their character. That's what, they, that's what he leads with. And then verse 9, holding to the faithful message as taught. To what end? For what purpose? so that he will be able both to, there's the word, encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. And then Paul summarizes his whole teaching ministry this way. Here's what we did in Thessalonica. We encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God. I I love that little list of three things. That's not a bad purpose statement for elders. Not a bad purpose statement for for pastoral ministry. In other words, this spirit-led mix of encouragement and comfort and pleading. I hope every Sunday is some spirit-led mix of encouragement and comfort and imploring, challenging, pleading every time we encounter God's work because that's what pastoral ministry is, according to Paul. Pastors are encouraging the flock. Second, the older are encouraging the younger. Not just pastors doing all the encouraging. The older members of the church are encouraging the younger members of the church. And notice that Paul, he wants Titus to make sure, right out of the gate, at the beginning of this chapter, he wants Titus to make sure that the older believers are, his words, sound in the faith. I want these older believers sound in the faith, living godly lives. Why? The reason is, because he wants to put those older believers to work for the good of the church. He wants them sound in faith so that they are 
pulling others. They are, they are building up those who are coming after them. He wants them to steward their proven faith and their endurance for the building up of the body. Look at verse 3. So now he's talking about older women in the church. They, the older women, are to teach what is good. So there's teaching. So that they may encourage, there's that word again, encourage, so that they may encourage the young women to action, to love their husbands, to love their children, right? Action in the ordinary, ordinary sphere of their life. Look, Brooke Hills, there should be mentoring type conversations going on among members of this faith family throughout the week. Where if we could see you all, we would see one another in different places in your house, living room, at the kitchen table, at a coffee shop, wherever, and we would see you digging into God's word. We would see you encouraging. We would see you confessing your sin and asking for help, asking for accountability. We would see those inner working, mutually encouraging dynamics in the life of the church. It's meant for us. That's how we flourish. We don't flourish in isolation. We flourish in community. And Titus wants to be able to say, if you read just these first two verses, right out of the gate, Titus wants to be able to say, he wants to bring all the older people up on the stage. And he says, I want to be able to point to those older men in the church and say, look at these guys. And I'm just going to read right off the page. Self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance. And then he looks over here. Look at these older women in our church. Reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to excessive drinking. In other words, what are the features? Character, life transformation in everyday, ordinary life. You know, when you, um, when you read the New Testament letters, you're hearing a conversation from one side of the phone. And in a sense, it, it gives you material to infer what's happening on the other side of the line, right? And so, so, for example, you, you read Corinthians and you can pick up on certain habits, certain patterns of sin that were dominant in the culture of Corinth. And then you had a different, slightly different set of patterns of sin and temptations that, that were prevalent in Colossae, for example. So he says, you, you, you're running after all these high-flown philosophical ideas and you've left the simplicity of the gospel. In Colossae, that's what you need. Get, come back to center, right? And then there are, apparently, so Titus is in Crete. That's where he's an elder. And apparently there's a, a little batch, a little bundle of sins that gather around the culture in Crete. And what are they? Well, apparently the young men, if you read just down in verse 6, Apparently, the young men in Crete struggled to get their act together. They, they struggled to live lives that were marked by self-control. So Paul says that that's the target. We, we look for change in this area among the young men. And apparently, the older women, now that the kids weren't at home, had this sort of, you know, kind of gossip clubs thing that would happen and, and they would get together and they would just tell stories on everybody else that's going on, things that are going on in town and they would pour the wine and the more the wine flowed, the juicier the stories got. And that's why Paul is saying what he's saying here. He's saying um, faith in Christ is meant to change that. It's meant to make people new. We still struggle with temptation and sin but we're not what we used to be. 
God by his spirit is at work in the church. And Paul wants to put those older believers up in front of the congregation and say, look, they've been transformed. They're not doing what they did in unbelieving Crete anymore. They're not talking the way they used to talk or living the way they used to live. Look at what God does in people's lives through his word. And that's meant to have an effect on the entire church. I just talk about our, um, our context and where we are. So we, we live in a culture that glorifies youthfulness, that wants to extend youthfulness all the way to the end of our lives. And friends, that is not the thought world of the Bible. The thought world of the Bible glorifies old age. There's a sense in which somebody comes into the room and if they've got gray hair, everyone shut up. He's talking. This person's lived longer than the rest of us. This person's accumulated more experience, walked through more trials, decades of endurance in the faith. Be quiet, she's talking. There's that sense. There's this, this respect, this esteem for the generation that's out in front of us. I, I just want to say to to us as a church, to those of you who are older in this church, if you're of an age where you could be a grandparent, we are richer because you're here. As a church, we need you here and we need you influential. (laughs) We need you speaking, we need you modeling, we need you mentoring and discipling. I, I feel for friends of mine who plant churches And they say to me, they say, bro, I I need some older people in this church so bad. They say, I'm the oldest person in the church by 20 years. I am 45. (laughs) And and they're just, they're looking around and they're like, "We've we've got parents of young children and they don't know which way is up and they need encouragement that they wouldn't grow weary in doing well and nobody's ahead of them. And I can't be the one who encourages all of them personally. On the other hand, I know of some churches right here in our city that would die for some young blood in their churches. And in their case, they have VBS every year because it's the only time of the year they actually have children in the room. The generational diversity that we have as a church is a gift of God. It is not to be taken lightly. It is not to be overlooked. Generational diversity in the church brings great blessing to the church if we lean into it, if we're together for this, right? There is tremendous strength that comes when we have what I like to call the gift of gray as a church. And we have the gift of gray. The gray might not be gray, but it's there nonetheless, isn't it, (laughs) And the point isn't the color of the hair. The point is there's experience, there's a story there, there's a faith, there's a worn-out Bible, there's someone who can tell you, there's someone who can model this for us. We benefit, church, we benefit from the wisdom that comes from decades of Bible intake, decades of parenting, decades of for better, for worse, decades of endurance, in faith, decades of purity as a single man or woman. But right out of college, I, I interned at a church in Missouri for a summer, and everybody in the church was over 60. 
which for me meant a lot of breakfast times, free breakfast at Denny's, which was awesome. Um, and so I was meeting with multiple people, just being invited out for breakfast every day of the week, and it was amazing. And I remember sitting down with what I think was the oldest man in the church, maybe the world. Um, and, uh, and we sat down together, and he bought breakfast at Denny's. And I just, I just asked him so many questions. And I found out he had been married for over 50 years. He had lost his wife in the recent five years. He had served in the military. He had served as an elder in his church for many, many years. And he's just telling stories. I'm asking questions, and he's just patiently answering. And we're laughing, and he's opening up his whole world. And, and I looked at him as he's talking there, and I just couldn't help but see the, the lack of physical strength. And I'm hearing these stories about military life, and I'm thinking, man, you must have been something. But there was a lack of physical strength, and here I am sitting across the table pounding biscuits in the prime of my life, and I'm looking at this guy, and I'm saying, but he is a mighty oak of faith, and I'm the richest guy in Denny's. Just to hear these stories, to be affected by the beauty of example, and there was a light in his eyes, there was a fervor for Christ, there was a love for his word, a love for the church. It was, I felt so rich. Look, not every church in God's providence has the gift of gray. We do, and we should praise God for it. And, and if you're of grandparent age, we need your encouragement. We need you influential. We need you talking. So pastors are encouraging the flock, the older are encouraging the younger. The members are encouraging one another. It doesn't stop. It's not just the pastors and it stops there or the staff and it stops there. It's not just the older ones and they, it stops there. Now everybody, now everybody's called. It's an all skate. Everybody on the floor, we're all encouraging one another, right? Why do we do life courses? So you, you've got a rollout of life courses. It all starts today, right? We, we do that because we want the guy that I was telling the hypothetical story about the guy who just discovered the New Testament doesn't know how to be a Christian dad. We want him to have an easy on-ramp to find out, how do I be a Christian dad? And not just to hear teaching or monologues, but to find mentors in the room. That's, that's what that's all about. Why do we want everybody in a small group? Because this dynamic of interplay and mutual encouragement in the church is meant for the flourishing and upbuilding of the whole. We can't grow without this. I mean grow in the most important ways, by the way. We can't grow without depth of friendship. Here's a life verse for every small group. Life verse, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. I'll read it to you. Encourage one another and build each other up. How's that? Simple, easy to remember. 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Encourage one another and build each other up. How's your small group doing? If that's your life verse, how are you doing? You think about how the, the writer to the Hebrews describes this gathering, the gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day, the gathering of the local church for worship. Here's how he describes it. He says, don't neglect to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, you read that verse, 
and the writer of the Hebrews doesn't just want Christians to not skip church. It's not like the goal is, okay, you're in the room. Okay, fine. That, that's not the goal. Just don't skip church. No, he wants Christians to gather eager to encourage one another and more and more while the day gets closer. The longer we live, the more we need this gathering and the encouragement that's meant to happen here. Look, God says to you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope you hear God in his word saying to you, you don't get to live to yourself and as you please. We get to live for him and do as he pleases. That's, that's what this means. He's our Lord. He gives us our marching orders. He knows what's good for us. He knows how we flourish and how we grow. And, and so we get to do as he pleases. And what pleases the Lord, apparently, according to Hebrews chapter 10, is when we gather together and encourage one another. And all the more, the closer the day gets. You know, earlier in that same book, in Hebrews, we're not just told to encourage each other in weekly worship. He says this, encourage each other daily <laughs> while it's still called today so that, and here the stakes are high, right? None of you is hardened by sin's deception. Once a week isn't adequate encouragement. According to Hebrews, you need it every day. We need to be interacting. We need relationships. You think about the New Testament. So it's got 59 one another's which only makes sense if you apply them in the context of the local church. So here's a little sampling of some of the one another's. Be devoted to one another. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Welcome one another. Carry one, another, one another's burdens. Spur one another on to love and good deeds. So just look at that list for a second there. So small groups are happening, and small groups are here and encouraged because there should be people in this church who can expect those things from you. And there should be nameable people in this church who you expect those things from them so that we're all growing in faith and no one's living to themselves, no one's isolated. We're doing these one another's for the benefit of the whole. What happens when we lean into that? That and all the others. What happens as Brook Hill's develops in that way is we become, by God's grace, a fellowship that is full of life, spiritual life and depth and joy and real relationships and friendship. Christian friend, God is calling you to the ministry of encouragement, and second, God is calling you to the ministry of example. The ministry of example you think about those words that we studied a few weeks ago when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, don't worry about John. John is none of your business. You follow me. Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who gets to say, follow me, period. Follow me, full stop. The rest of us get to say what the Apostle Paul says. Follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, the assumption is, I stop following him, you stop following me. You follow me as long as I'm following him. If I trail off, you stop following. That's, that's the direction. That's what disciple making is all about. In other words, you can't make disciples if you aren't one. If you aren't following Jesus, there's no one who should be behind you. 
because you're leading them in a destructive direction. Here, here's the point. Friends, we, um, we can't separate learning from living. We can't separate what we say from how we live. We haven't truly learned the faith unless we're living the faith. That's the proof that it's authentic. It's not just us running our mouths where our lips are far away from Christ. No, the proof that we're not just running our mouths is our lives back it up, renders those words credible. You can believe them. I obviously believe them. You can see that, right? Notice how much emphasis Paul is placing in Titus on the kind of lives Christians live. Again, this is just one passage. We could look at others, but here are the character traits, and they tend in this passage, it just so happens, they tend to focus on the home, but we could look at other places to see others. But here, here's just a list. I'm just going to read them, read them to you straight off the page. Self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible, sound in faith, love, and endurance, reverent, not slanderers, not drinking excessively, loving their husbands and their children, self-controlled, pure, hardworking, kind, submissive, and then look at the end of verse five. To what purpose? So that God's word will not be slandered. In other words, the holiness of the lives of Christians is missionally strategic. It is missionally vital. And then he's right back to the life that we live, right? In verse, what is it? Verse six, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And then Paul, right after that, exhorts Titus, hey, make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. And he says, do this so consistently, down in verse eight, that your opponents can't say anything bad about you. Meaning they can't say anything bad and it be true. They could slander you or say something that's untrue, but he says we are to live in such a consistent way that the opponents can't say anything bad about you. And then he, he goes into verse nine, slaves. Paul doesn't have a high view of slavery. Read Philemon, he is against the idea. And so much of what he says in different places in Galatians is undermining slavery with his left hand even while in, in the midst of a culture that's broken in a systemic society where there's lots of brokenness and injustice. So he's undermining it with his left hand but with his right hand he's saying, hey, while this broken system is here, don't suffer for unrighteousness. Don't steal from your master. Don't be a backbiting person. This counterculture is revolutionary. What are we seeing here? What's the, what's the idea? Three words. Grace changes people. Grace changes people. And it all, the fountain of all this isn't human will and effort. It's grace. Look at verse 11. This is the key verse that the whole passage hinges on. Here's the motivation for everything he's exhorted. For, do all that stuff. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. And what did it do? It's bringing salvation for all people. What else is it doing? It's instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lust. You see the feature is living the way that we live and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself, here's the gospel, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good 
works. There's the message of the gospel. We have a saving word to bring to a lost world. You see it right there in verse 14. Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. We would be his. That's our message to a dying world. We say to a lost and broken world, there's rescue for us. We are a mess, but, but God sent Jesus. And he went to the cross. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He bore your sin in his body on the tree. He rose again three days later, and he's here. This Jesus is here for the knowing. His forgiveness is here for the having. Turn from your sin. Run to him in faith. If that message is news to you this morning, I would invite you, I would implore you to run to this one Savior and hope of the world. No other saviors are coming. There's no other way to God. There's no other way to be reconciled to this awesome, holy, loving God. And when you do turn to him in faith, all kinds of things by his spirit start changing. He moves in and furniture is being moved all around and dead places are suddenly alive. All kinds of stuff is happening. You read the story in your worship guide later on and you'll see how, how this passage is something God used to pull Chris into his calling. Chris Croyle was the one who, who read. His voice was the one reading the text. He's the one who said, this is my life verse. God used this to, to bring me into real ministry. And I love, I love right here in verse six. It's, it's basically Paul saying, Titus, I, I want you to encourage the young men to be in, you know, self-controlled in everything. And if Titus were to turn around and say, okay, how do I do that, Paul? How do you want me to encourage these young guys? And what does he say next? He says, you'll show them. You're going to show them by your example. Verse 8, make yourself an example. You're right there. You're right next to them. Make yourself an example of good works. That's how it happened. In that sense, I, I read that and I think about the story that Chris Croyle wrote. And it's almost like he, he heard God saying, hey, hey, I want your life. And I want your life to make a difference and leave a mark on others, and if Chris turned around and said, which others, it's as though God said, let's start with the ones who are right in front of you. You're a teacher, you got a classroom full of people, let's start here. It, it, it brings God into the ordinary places of life where we actually live. This is the same Paul, by the way, who, talking about example, he said this in Philippians 4, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Example is a beautiful thing. And Paul is talking about a life that commends the message of the gospel. His words, a life that adorns the gospel, enhances, beautifies the gospel throws light on favorable light, credible light on the gospel, a life that, according to verse 8, forces skeptics to reconsider, forces skeptics to doubt their doubts, to put down their megaphones because, because the wrench that God throws in their whole system of thought is you, a believer. I've always had these pictures of hypocritical Christians. I, you don't make sense to me. You're different. 
So what do you have to say about this Christian gospel? You see, it's missionally strategic. Sometimes the biggest hindrance to the gospel are the lives of the people proclaiming it. Obnoxious believers, unholy believers, disinterested, unloving, distracted believers, petty, proud, culturally condescending believers, dishonest believers, immoral believers, win-at-all-cost believers. You might be familiar with them, with the word hyperbole. So a hyperbolic statement is a statement that is intentionally blown out of proportion. It's an exaggeration for effect. It's intentional exaggeration for purposes of effect. And Jesus uses hyperbole himself when he wants, when he wants to shock an audience out of a deep blindness. So when Jesus says, for example, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, he's meddling. He's meddling. When the Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, you're kings and we're the scum of the earth. He's meddling with the glory of Corinth and the super apostles that they wanted. And he said, this is what you got. You got scum, that's what you got. He's meddling. When A.W. Tozer says the devil isn't fighting churches, he's joining them. He's not trying to be technical in making an ecclesiological statement. He is meddling. When Martin Luther, the 16th century reformer, said in order to reach the world, Christians have to become profane. It was a play on words, the word fanum, meaning temple. Christians, basically saying to his own culture in his time, he's saying, We can't affect a world that's drowning in sin if you live in your monastery every day of your life. You gotta get outside where the action is. You gotta get out into the world. You gotta be profane, profanum, outside the temple. Get out here in the real world that's dying. He's meddling. He's trying to shock an audience out of deep blindness. Here's another one, though. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. No one knows who actually said that. I wish we did, because I wonder if the original intent of the saying wasn't to be technically accurate, but to meddle. If you've ever known a Christian who tells everybody at the office about Jesus while gossiping about the supervisor, if you've ever known a Christian who you hate to open at the store the next morning after she's closed because she never does the things that she's asked to do. And yet, come lunch, she'll tell everybody here about Jesus. If you've ever known the Christian who is engaged in all kinds of ministry but fudges on his sales reports and insults his wife and flirts with every attractive customer who walks into the building, you know there might be a need for some meddling in just this area. Friend, it's possible to carry a saving message, the right message, to the world, and yet no one is compelled to believe it. Maybe they're not actually saying no to Jesus, they're saying no to you. Maybe no one wants to go to the heaven that we're telling them about because they got the impression we'd be there. 
maybe Christianity in the Bible Belt needs to be shocked out of a deep blindness. Welcome to Crete in the first century. That's why there's so much emphasis on the life you live. It can either cause the slanderers to put their megaphones down or to pick them up and crank the volume. It's why this entire letter, not just these verses, is about the Christian life. Paul is saying, essentially, hey, Titus, I need your attention. Pastor, I need to tell you this. Don't teach the church smart. Teach them changed. Teach the gospel in such a way that people are transformed. Why? Because people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ will leave a mark on their society. We'll leave a mark on the city, on the neighborhood. The church of Jesus Christ, I feel this deeply. I think the church of Jesus Christ has so much repenting to do if this world is ever gonna believe the message is true. Here's the point, Brook Hills. Don't just talk the gospel. Adorn the gospel. That's the language he uses. You see it in verse nine. Adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. Can I, can I put it positively? So Christian friend, hang with me here. Don't underestimate the weight that your life gives to your words. Your humility, your compassion, your kindness, your love, that adds weight. Your everyday actions, your relationships, your integrity matters deeply for the advancement of the gospel. God uses ordinary Christians to do all the heavy lifting in his kingdom. I think the New Testament makes that very clear. Most of the heavy lifting of the kingdom is done by ordinary Christians. I've met a lot of Christians over the years who feel guilty or embarrassed about how ordinary their lives are. Whereas God in so many ways is saying, that's where the glory happens. That's, that's exactly where I'm trying to work in the real world, in your real everyday life. And notice what doesn't feature anywhere in Titus 2. It's all over American evangelicalism, but notice what doesn't feature anywhere in Titus 2. Gifts, platform, talents, charisma, dynamism, skills, nowhere, degrees, it's not here. And then notice what grace does when it arrives on the scene in the church in verse 11. The grace of God appears and what happens? It instructs believers. Look at it, verse 11. It instructs Christians to live, his words, in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. That's what grace came to do in Crete. To instruct Christians to sensible, righteous, and godly living. We, We love fireworks. We love pyrotechnic spiritual events. You, you write a Christian book inspired by this language, you write a Christian book called Living Sensibly for God, nobody's going to buy it. Now write, live loud, live big, give big, go big, dream big. You write that book, you write, set your world ablaze, you write, drench your world in love, right? Just use whatever metaphor of natural cataclysms that you can reach and pull out of the sky. You write that book, everybody buys it. It sells like hotcakes. But the only people buying your book called Live Sensibly are the people who were burned out after reading 
live loud, live big, <laughs> dream big, go hard. What I love about Chris Croyle's story is it injects sacredness into ordinary places. It puts God not just at the parting of the Red Sea where we expect to find him, right? Walls are standing up, dry land. Of course, God must be here somewhere. This doesn't happen all the time. We expect God to be there. We expect mass conversions on Pentecost, right? We expect, of course, God is here. This puts God at the dinner table. This puts God at basketball practice and ballet lessons and a thousand other places you might expect he'd never show up. But here he is and he says, let's work. Let's work right, right here. Ordinary world, life, marriage, parenting, work, environment. Let's go right here. This is where I want to work. Ready to use you to grow Christians in Christ and move non-Christians toward Christ as you do what? As you display the life-transforming power of the gospel. I love this quote from 19th century pastor Robert Murray McShane. He says, It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. Isn't that good? i got to read it again. It is not great talents that God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. We, church, we can share the compelling message of the gospel while living compelling lives only through the power of His Spirit, Lives that adorn the message of the gospel that we proclaim. Lives that are beautiful. Lives that are imperfect, but lives that are exemplary because of God's grace. So that they may see, as Jesus said, our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven.